Hello and welcome to this Naval Studies Group podcast, the second of three recorded at a recent seminar in the Fleet Air Arm Museum in Nowra, New South Wales. This group of three episodes examines the operations of the Fleet Air Arm in the Vietnam War, primarily in conjunction with the US Army and also with the Royal Australian Air Force. In this episode, we consider a US Army perspective of the helicopter flight Vietnam, discuss the leadership challenges experienced by two flight commanders, and take a look at the work involved in keeping the helicopters airworthy every day. We begin with Lieutenant Colonel Fred Dunaway of the US Army, who flew with the 135th Assault Helicopter Company in 1970 and 71, and who will recount his experience of flying in this US-Australian Army-Navy unit. As he said, I'm uh, Fred Dunaway. I, had the, I was the CO of the fourth contingent and final contingent, and it was one of the most uh, enjoyable experiences of my military career. I've got some uh, notes here I'm going to be following because I've learned uh, the older I get, the more forgetful I get. And if you don't believe that, ask my wife, Charlotte. <laughs> I'm sorry, ask my wife, Caroline. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I'm going to deviate from what you've seen earlier. I'm going to talk about what, what, what I call the, uh, the uh, after Vietnam, and that's the most compelling experience of my life, and I'll explain that as I go along. Uh, we, during our time, we lost six men during that six months over there, and we lost no Australians. And uh, so I, I wanted to compare what I'm going to say with the Australian technique as opposed to our technique about responding to parents when they have a, a death in, in Vietnam. And I'd like to do that by uh, giving you a little background first. Uh, this is, I'm talking about the commanding officer duties. Commanding officer. Now, commanding officer is a... Is a it's a word, you can be commanding officer of a company, you can be commanding officer of a battalion, you can be commanding officer of a brigade or group. Commanding officer is a magic word when you're talking to parents because you can call and say something to them about, and I'm Fred Dunaway, it doesn't mean a thing, but you say the commanding officer, that is, is uh, really special. Uh, as an example, uh, the first guy I lost, a gentleman, he was horsing around on a large forklift, and uh, his buddy was driving it, and they were going along, bouncing, and he it threw him off and killed him. So uh, I wrote the mother, and she responded to me about my letter. She said, my son was a troubled child, constantly causing problems. And I, I'm quoting her. We thought the discipline of the Army would be good, and he needed it. Your letter, as commanding officer, saying he was a brave soldier, courageously gave his life for his country, has been framed and will hang in a place of honor forever. I mean, what can you, what, what can you say about that? How you, a few words signed by a commanding officer on the, on the wall is, is going to be very special. And it, it clears his, he may be a problem child one time, but now he's a hometown hero. The second, a helicopter crash that killed four men as well as seven Arvin soldiers because a weapon inside was fired by an Arvin soldier, went up to and knocked out the, the and it crashed. There wasn't even a sound, no one said that the cyclic was banging around that they couldn't even send out a, a mayday call. I wrote the family, the response was from the mother and its sister, thank you, we have put all that behind us, we do not want to relive, relive it, and we want no association with the Army in the future. I mean, you, you don't know what to say or how they're going to take it, and uh, there's no real answer, no real solution. Uh, a helicopter piloted by a young warrant officer tries to rescue a wounded soldier with a sling through the jungle canopy 
On an outpost with knowledge, the outpost was receiving enemy fire. They had no air or ground support. The aircraft was shot down and the pilot killed and the remaining crew were injured. Earlier, prior to the departure, uh, days before the, the departure, the commanding officer at the time, who was with uh, uh, Dave uh, Alexander, Walter Alexander, he said, We've, you've got to do something about this man. He says, I've already sent him two letters of reprimand. He's going to kill himself. He's very careless. So that's exactly what happened. So I, the parent, I give you the response. Uh, his sister writes, his former commanding officer did not like my brother and wrote me some ugly letters. Your letter, commending him for his bravery and for giving him his life trying to rescue, giving his life for trying to rescue the injured soldier, pleased us well. The letter was read at the town council meeting and they agreed to have a monument placed at the gravesite where a service will be conducted every year on Memorial Day. That's, that's hard to take. I, I, I've lived with that a long time. I don't know what's the right thing to do. It may not have been the correct thing to do, but I thought it was the right thing to do. So anyway, uh, that's my confession today, and I appreciate all of you listening to it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Fred. Next, we have two former commanding officers of the HFE who will speak about their experiences of command in what was a unique wartime environment. The first is Rear Admiral Neil Ralph, who was CO of the first HFE in 1967-68. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Can everybody hear me at the back? Good. Well, I think I've been preempted by uh, others earlier on, but uh, I'll carry on in the same vein. But I, there was one particular point or one particular ground that I did want to cover, and it has to do with the type of operation we did and why we were doing it. But just to start with, uh, we were originally at Bung Tau, we were only there for a month. Uh, initially, it was only a settling down period, and uh, we, we expected as a company to leave there. Uh, we joined the 135th there, it was coming in from the States as a brand new company, it had been a caribou company prior to that, until it reformed as a sole helicopter company. Uh, I thought that the people in it were excellent. We got on very well from the start. and uh, But we were glad, in a way, to move out of Bung Tower because we had some people over in that section of the town, other people accommodated in this section. It was all over the place, and the company work sites were similarly uh, made throughout the, the Bung Tau complex itself. There's some interesting things came out of our short stay there though. We talked to the Mohawk people. The Mohawk type of aeroplane was a small twin engine aeroplane and uh, its job was to, to take photographs at night of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And uh, they didn't let it let us know too much about it. Well, we didn't have the opportunity to talk with them much. But it was interesting to, to, to know that they were there doing what they were doing. It was a fair way away from the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but I can well understand why they went to Bung Tower because it was more secure than where else they might have been. <clears throat> but we left the security of Bung Tower to go to Black Horse. Started me wondering why we were doing one, some things and not others, but uh, it took us, our, our area of operations really was, as Max pointed out, we were over in the west side of the delta of the Three Corps area, which is pretty much the rice growing delta, uh, to the south of Saigon, east and west of that area. And uh, when we, we had a, a, a good hour's transit across there at Oakoko in the morning and back at a God knows what time in the evening, but uh, it was a long way to go and while we were trying to conserve spare parts and so forth, it seemed strange that we should be placed in an area where we were still adding two hours transit time at least to 
15 airplanes uh, each day. So it seemed to waste, but there was probably a reason behind it. It was also mysterious why we moved to Blackhorse, uh, which was to the north of Bungtown, about the same distance from the area of operations in which we had to go each day, just about make the same transit of over an hour for each aeroplane. Anyway, <clears throat> that's where we went. Notionally, it was to be available to the first ATF, should they need us, and available to the 18th Arvin, uh, that's South Vietnamese Army unit in Swan Lock, which was just to our north from Black Horse. Uh, not a particularly active unit, but uh, they were there. But we went on working with the 9th Division, which was, as I say, in the west side of the Delta more than it was in the east side. And probably the 9th Division, US Army, was our best customer for the various battalions of the 9th Division. Uh, so we've stayed at Black Horse for most of, well, all of our stay after that and kept this, this long uh, transit route going. Most of our work was combat assaults, as uh, Max and others have given you some idea of. Uh, we worked with a number of, as I say, US Army 9th Division battalions, probably mostly at that time. We did see a bit of the Arvin in the Delta, the 25th Arvin and the 5th Arvin. 25th was tended to be south of the Delta area, west and south, and the 5th Arvin to the east. We were doing, as I say, combat assaults, which meant that we used uh, 10 aeroplanes, or 11 aeroplanes sometimes, to move troops, the American troops and the Australian troops, pretty heavy fellas, with all their clobber and uh, so we we're only able to take about 10 of those troops whereas with the Arvins when we carried them we could carry 14 no trouble at all because all they had was a bag of rice and uh, a gun but I don't know that they had any ammunition <clears throat> and I don't mean to be, be disparaging about the Arvin but they weren't any bloody good I can tell you uh, but the 9th Division were real professionals um, they did everything right, and I should explain the relationship between us and the supported army commander. He was the boss, and we were the means of getting from A to B and some provided some guidance on the use of gunships, what the good targets were, and how the gunships should be used. However, they get a bit greedy sometimes, but uh, as I say, we were there to support them. The one incident that uh, I'm, I can remember quite clearly it was one night <clears throat> we were working down at Dong Tan, which is pretty close to the bad guys area and uh, we'd had a bit of a, a long firefight day. We delivered the troops back to their camp and uh, I sat down with the battalion commander and he said, before you go, we've got one more job to do, meaning before the flight went. We've got one more job to do. And I said, what's that? Well, my team need clean, dry socks. And uh, we want to take a load of clean, dry socks out to the team, which to his battalion, which was then in a, 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 a clear area, but uh, well away from any, he hoped, any other enemy group. So I said, well, in this weather, and it was the middle of, middle of the monsoon season, I said, in this weather, at this time of night, we could, it's going to be difficult to see, where, see them on the ground and be to get the aircraft into an area there. And it may well be that we'll lose two aircraft in this process, making a guess about it. And he said, all right, let's go. <laughs> so we did, and we got the socks to the troops and, Hopefully they enjoyed them. But it proved a, a, a clear point. And this came up in the context of the argument, and I don't want to take sides here, but context of the argument as to whether in Australia here the Army should operate the helicopters or the Air Force. And I thought it was a good case 
to make, uh, or part of the case to make, that the Army should have the helicopters. And I understand between you and I that uh, that got to the DFDC, who made the, made the, well, the Chiefs of Staff Committee, who made the change. So that small thing went all that way, might have had an effect. Anyway, we were, were doing that, and uh, we were doing these combat assaults, putting in troops into areas in what was called search and destroy. The idea of that was to perhaps intelligence warn the battalion about <clears throat> there being uh, VC or NVA in such and such an area and they needed to be cleaned out or attacked or controlled anyway. And so the battalion commander would work out where the best place was to go or to land troops in and where they might go from there on and back again. We didn't, we wouldn't have known just what was there waiting for us. Uh, and in our case, as I say, most of our work was done in the Delta. The Delta area to the west had a lot of uh, cover in it. And this gave shelter to VC and NVA movements on the ground. And often enough, we couldn't see quite where we were working, where the troops were going to work. We could only land in a fairly, as much cl a cleared area as we could find. So on disgorging the troops, which as Max said, is, is, the, mo is the time when you're at the most vulnerable, um, the troops would get out and get into the perimeter of the area and do their, their thing. Uh, there were many times in this process that we were sh shot I think we shot at, I think we damaged 67 aeroplanes, 69 aeroplanes from doing that sort of work. Uh, on five occasions, we had more than five aircraft shot out of the sky. They had to land. Thankfully, uh, our maintenance team, who was always with us, managed to get many of those going again uh, by doing all sorts of things like repairing that control link that you heard about earlier. Uh, I don't know whether I would have trusted that aeroplane, but anyway. <laughs> <coughs> That's the sort of thing that was happening. Uh, it was gradually, if anything, getting a bit worse, uh, the opposition we had. Now, the Americans, the BC or NVA, would not go into battle too much with the Americans. Uh, bits a bit... Uh, careful about that. If we had Arvin on board, they would go for the Arvin. There's no doubt about that. And normally they would wait until they were into a well-covered area so that you couldn't see them, or be they'd wait until six o'clock at night, five o'clock at night in the evening to start their movement because then they'd have the shelter of darkness should they need it. They were very clever people in the way they used the land and uh, time of day, all those things to get the better of their enemy. So we had a quite a thing, but in the process of this, in the whole year, we did so many of this in the same areas, suffering the same sort of casualties. I wonder what we were, why we couldn't stop it in some way. The answer was that they lived over the border, a lot of them, a lot of the NVA, VC people lived over the border with Cambodia, in our part of the woods anyway, and with Laos in the north. And of course that's where the Ho Chi Minh Trail was. And you would have all seen diagrams of the Ho Chi Minh Trail coming from north to south, taking God knows what. And again, I understand from some of the Mohawk pilots that uh, the trail was developing into quite a super highway in many ways. There were multiple tracks coming down, there were ambulance stations, there were all sorts of facilities being built on the trail and we couldn't do a damn thing about it. Uh, at one point, and, and that's why we kept doing these exercises or these, these missions with uh, combat assaults to try and keep the population in, uh, of enemy in, in that area down. I don't know that we were all that effective in doing that. 
so the Ho Chi Minh trial was the problem, and it would continue to be the problem while ever it was in such an operation. I know the Americans uh, put in, I think it was called Rolling Thunder, uh, an operation like that in which uh, ground attack aircraft attacked uh, targets in the, on the trail, much to the anguish of uh, the Cambodians. Sitting and look was then the president of Cambodia, quite a weak sort of leader, and uh, he didn't give permission for any of this to happen, but it had to happen. And uh, gradually he was succeeded by General Lom Nol, who took over the army and uh, took over the government of the place, and things improved a bit, but not on the trail. He still didn't have the resources to uh, overcome the trail, and, uh, and so this continued, and I wondered just how long it was going to be carrying, for us to be carrying out assaults every day of the week, just about, for every day of the year, uh, and whether our successors would be doing much the same thing until that trial was knocked out. Well, it never was. The Americans went into Cambodia in a big way at, after our time, and they were unable, well, they did a lot of damage, but uh, I don't think they were able to stop the activity on the trail. So that's where we finished up over there. We didn't really achieve, we achieved a lot in my view, but we didn't achieve victory. Uh, you might say, I couldn't see any change in where the war was from the time of the beginning, our beginning and the time of our ending. Any questions? Okay, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Neil. And now, two years later, Commodore David Farthing commanded the third HFE in 1969-70, by which time the Army-Navy arrangements had had the chance to settle down. Were the command challenges any different or any easier? I thought I'd start by talking about the arrival at Bearcat and my coping with this extraordinarily different situation. I didn't go to Vietnam with an enormous number of hours, not like Neil. I wasn't entirely a professional aviator at that point. I had uh, come from command of a minesweeper, which was uh, so it couldn't have been more different. The three COs I had were quite different, and you'd expect that, whether they were Australian or American. The first one was Harry Woodman C. He had been with Zork for some months, and so I didn't need to do any training at all. Zork had got him doing what he wanted him to do. <laughs> but he was a nice man, and we got on perfectly well. Then on, uh, Bill Beasley came as the next major. Uh, it, this is a bit of a tragic story. Uh, at the same time as he arrived, the Inspector General arrived in Vietnam, and so that the 135th, which had been in country for a number of years without ever having an audit or inspection, suddenly was under the gun. And the Inspector General actually handed Bill a personal bill for $68,000 for missing trucks and guns and one thing and another. So I was very sympathetic. And of course, unfortunately, Bill wasn't able to delegate. He particularly wasn't able to trust the Australians, which was absolutely tragic because the Australians in flying and in uh, maintenance and, and so on were, had become very much the backbone of that unit at that time. And uh, in addition, his first sergeant, who's a, a, a vital cog in any, uh, any army organisation, uh, had become an alcoholic. And so we, he was really under pressure and it was very difficult. And then to cap all that, Bill was away and, and the arrangement was when Bill was out of the place, I was the, the CO, and this young, very smart, uh, career US uh, Army captain, I think he'd been at West Point, came and announced himself, saluted smartly and said, I'm your new instructor. 
Now, this is the way of the American forces. We had a very, very good instructor, a senior warrant officer, George Callum. And I don't know if you watch MASH, MASH likely, but this happens all the way. The general heard how, how good he was and took him off as his personal pilot, which was a terrible waste because he's doing a good job. Anyway, so we got this new, with a, a couple of weeks break, we got this new instructor who was very important to us, bearing in mind that Americans were coming to the war with a total of no more than 100 hours of flying. And uh, anyway, he said, I'm your new instructor. I said, well, can we need an instructor? How many hours have you got? He said, 125. And I said, does that mean instructing? He said, no, that's the total. <laughs> so, I mean, it, we can laugh about it, but it, it certainly wasn't funny. So I went flying with him that afternoon, and he was a keen young man, and he knew the book, but he flew the aeroplane, as you'd expect. He, hadn't, he wouldn't have got his wings in an Australian organisation. And he didn't really know the aeroplane. That wasn't his fault. He was just put in the situation. So when, I, I, when Bill came back, I said, listen, uh, I can't let this new instructor fly with any of my pilots. No Australian had less than 1,000 hours at that time. I just can't allow it. I mean, he's just not competent. And Bill, one thing or another, got reacted very badly and said, well, I can't accept that. And that was the first time that I'd used my national line of command. I was the XO in the American company, but I also had direct access to General Fraser, the commander of the Australian Force Vietnam in Saigon. And so I flew up and saw him. He said, can I use your helicopter? And I said, not only that, I'll fly it for you. We then went up and called on General Abrams, who said, leave it with me. And that evening, about six o'clock, we were down standing on a small pad in a a brigadier, one of the chiefs of staff and General Abrams' staff said, pointed Bill and said, you will not use that man as instructor till you get further instructions from the general. So next morning I went off the early start, five o'clock or thereabouts, came back and I, to my horror, Bill had not only allowed this man to instruct but the instructor had killed his student. Now, it doesn't matter how sympathetic you are, I don't know any general, and not particularly not General Abrams, who will tolerate direct disobedience of an order of that kind, particularly when it involved international relations. So the same brigadier came down that, that evening and uh, said to Bill, pack your bags, you'll fire. So that was, that was all very sad, and it wasn't, it, you can imagine the company wasn't a good place to be. And the battalion commander said, I'll choose the next commanding officer. And General Abrams himself said, well, you've mucked it up the last couple. He said, I'll choose him. <laughs> On a day or two later, Walter Alexander came and the war was just, just different. I, he, he was a leader, hard man, a sort of man who'd rather walk through a wall than go around it, but also understanding people. And, and one of the first little conferences we had, he said, Dave, we'll never go to, to bed angry with each other. And so that's the way we operated. One night I was in bed and I thought, you so-and-so, we had an argument. So I got up and jumped, knocked on his door and said, you, you win, I'm not going to bed angry with you. And he just laughed. He said, I didn't think you would. <laughs> and so suddenly we had a relationship where the Australians were, were uh, uh, treated with the respect they deserved. And in fact, uh, Chief Petty Officer Dick Markwell, who sadly died the other day, actually came on as effectively became the company engineer, the sort of job that Stafford Lowe had done, and uh, quality control. And, it, and when the first sergeant went on leave, he was first sergeant. So that showed the sort of respect that he was treated with. And, and everything worked extraordinarily well. The next, uh, the next problem I had was... Uh, I was sent for by the Deputy Commander of the Australian Forces, Air Commodore Spurgeon, uh, in Saigon. Nice man. I knew what he wanted to say. And so I was standing, standing to attention, so you sent for me. He said, yes, what you're doing is dangerous. I knew precisely what he meant. I, but I forced the issue and said, what do you mean? He said, you're flying too much. And I said, and at that point we had... We'd had, uh, some, we'd had to meet our operational commitments 
had to go to 160 hours a month in some cases. So I said, well, I said, what's your accident rate like at Van Cow? They had a 70 hour a month limit. What's your accident? Oh, it's terrible. And I said, yeah, I, I know. I said, we haven't had one accident or one incident that wasn't directly caused by enemy action. Andy Perry nearly broke that. He came back one day and had bits of greenery on his skids. <laughs> and uh, Walter and I happened to be on the line and, and Walter said, uh, what happened, Perry? And his fiercest voice and Andy said, bird strike, sir. And uh, Walter said, I see the bird was sitting on the nest, Perry. <laughs> But nothing more was said. He, he understood what, what was important and what wasn't important. So, the next, I don't talk of either of those as a crisis because we got a win, a win but it was, it was very sad and I've written to Bill Beasley from time to time and it's very sad, but you're in a military service, you, you don't ignore the direct orders of four-star generals unless you're an absolute lunatic. Um, the next real problem was, and Neil mentioned it, the invasion into... Cambodia. It was treated as an invasion because we were the, undoubtedly the, the unit with the best reputation in the Delta, we were chosen to lead that assault into Cambodia. And then of course to my, I was absolutely ashamed, I still am actually when I think about it, the Australian government said we were not to fly into Cambodia, although they'd let us get into a position where just about every command position in the company other than the ex other than the CO was filled by an Australian. It re really was devastating for the Australian morale. And uh, as it turned out, the invasion actually wasn't heavily defended and it was successful. And then the high command realised that this was destroying this company. So that in subsequent days, other people did the operation into command and we went back to operating the Delta. But it is, if there's a lesson I think it is. It should be that politicians don't direct the... Once they've sent you to war, you've got to get on to it. As a complete aside, uh, when I was captain of HMS Hobart, a destroyer many years later, I had Sir John Fieldhouse to, to lunch. Now, Sir John had been the commander-in-chief of the Falklands operation in, in the command centre in, in the UK, and I said, how did you get on with Mrs Thatcher? And he said, I only saw her once. She shook my hand and said, uh, Admiral, win me the war. That was the only instruction she got. And that, that in a comparison with the American political situ situation and ours is an important contrast. I'd like to just say a few words about the overall picture. When General Abrams took over in January of 1970, the war took a very big turn. Up to then, we'd been, the helicopters were being misused in my view. They were being used as trucks and not as to gain tactical or strategic advantage. And so we'd take a group out in the morning, first light, but at four o'clock we'd bring them home again so they could sleep in a warm lee that night and then we'd do it again. And of course, the net result of all that was that the Viet Cong then moved in the dark with impunity. And so, uh, General Abrams' approach was at his first staff meeting, he said, gentlemen, this effing rocketing is going to stop. So that instead of retiring at night, instead of hiding behind the earth wall berm and uh, not operating at night, suddenly changed. The leadership of the 7th and 9th Arvind Division, their leaders were changed. Uh, Uh, just lost my third um, We did we did uh, innovative things. Uh, we were the first. Dick Murrum and I flew the first uh, night hunter killer, uh, which was quite a quite an exciting night flying at 200 feet over the dark. And as someone pointed out, fortunately there weren't any big hills, but there were some big trees. Uh, so we flew as Charlie Charlie with a big searchlight in the back and a 50 caliber machine gun and just a canvas screen, so it was pretty distracting when, the, when it went off in your ear. 
uh, and we flew, we had a flare ship, 2,000 feet, and we had two guns close in behind us. And it was just extraordinary. It took the Viet Cong completely by surprise. And they were, the first few nights, they were just running every which way. And so that stopped them op operating at night and keeping their supply lines going. The other thing we did, we would detailed off to support uh, anti-guerrilla operations of the, of the Navy SEALs. And uh, that was all interesting work. And what happened is when we're standing by in the, in the middle of the day, we generally were standing by somewhere in the Delta. Uh, these four or six SEALs dressed like pirates and heavily armed would come along with a, with a photograph and they'd put it on the ground and we'd sit around and say, we want you to land your four helicopters around, around this, this hooch, as they called it. It was a house. <coughs> and their intelligence had told them there was a Viet Cong leader there. And so we did that. It was one of the problems for surprise with the Huey is that it's terribly, terribly noisy. So we would, because we were operating in the Delta, we'd go well out to sea, maybe 10 miles or so out to sea, get down to 20 feet and come in so that the surprise, it made navigation a bit of hit and miss, but it worked pretty well actually. The, as we got to the coast or approaching one of the points we'd looking for with the house, Charlie Charlie, I would pop up and drop smoke and then the slicks would land around, around that. that. That worked very well, was very effective. So all these new things uh, affected enemy morale. At that point, and it's my opinion that in, in May and June, or so by June of 1970, the war in the Delta had been won. I see Roger looking there. He was driving the guns at that stage. It was a very different war. The enemy were breaking and running when we came, which had never happened before. <coughs> they were digging up old French weapons because they, their supply chains had been broken. And in that area, in my view, the war was won. Unfortunately, it was too late. There was no political ground left to hold. But I, it, it's my firm view that had General Abrams been the Commander-in-Chief, say, five years earlier, the war may just have had a different outcome. And uh, Somebody who was a, a tough old World War II commander who wasn't a politician, who would have told the politicians ha how it was rather than what they'd like it to be. Uh, for those of you who have read David Halberstam's superb book, the best and the brightest. He made the point, and it was so obvious, that the, the captains and the, the, the majors and lieutenant colonels in, in country, all they knew all what was happening, but it never got honestly to the top. About a month after I arrived, my two flight commanders, uh, both young, good pilots, Dick Marham and Peter Clark, I came back from a mission and as I came back they said, hey boss, can we have a word? So we went into my room and had a beer and they said, you know, the war can't be won the way it's being fought here. Uh, it was a conclusion I'd come to so we, we set certain uh, rules for our own operations. But it, it really is quite tragic that two young officers who, who were nothing other in their military training than really good pilots at one of them only 21 years old, that, that they could come into country and see realistically that we weren't, go, we weren't winning the way we were doing it and we needed to change. But anyway, there it is. Uh, one little side story perhaps that you, you might be amused about. Just before General Abrams took over, uh, a US Army captain, big man, came again. I must have been in charge, saluted. I'm a new pilot. I said, oh, great, we're always short of pilots. Great. How many hours? We've got 200. That was terrific. And then I said, uh, uh, what have you been, Captain, what have you been doing before you came to us? Oh, he puffed himself up and he said, with great pride, I was General Westmoreland's minstrel. I played the guitar for the general at his evening meal so he didn't get too tense. <laughs> so 
I think that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you, David. With a total change of focus, the final speaker in this episode will address the job of repairing and maintaining the company's helicopters under what were generally very trying conditions. Petty Officer Bill Barlow was a technical inspector with the 3rd HFB in 1969-70. My name is William Barlow. The only time I've ever been called William used to be by my mother, and whenever my mother said, William, I used to say, run legs, your body's in trouble. <laughs> anyway, my, I was a Petty Officer Aircraft Mechanic with the 3rd contingent with um, David. 1969-1970 of the helicopter flight Vietnam. Upon arrival at Camp Martin Cox, or Bearcat as it was more commonly known, I was assigned as a technical inspector, or TI, in the aircraft maintenance section of the 135th Assault Helicopter Company. The procedure that we followed was that 50% of our flight changed over in September 1969, and the remainder joined us one month later. And by doing this, it reduced the di disruption on the company's operations. Um, and this all meant also we caught up with 50% of the second flight, which was already heading for home. We met them at, at um, Saigon Airport. Um, and basically, as we disembarked from the aircraft, they embarked ready to head home. The company was equipped with two models of, of Huey. Uh, Iroquois, the UH-1H, or Slick, as it more commonly known, and the gunship, which was a Charlie model. The RAN was equipped with B models, which was almost the same as the Charlie model, and it even had the same engine, the low-caming engine. And this resulted in a lot of our maintenance people having experience in operating the, not only the power plant, but also in... Um, maintaining the aircraft, uh, the overall uh, airframe as well. Uh, we also had experience with all facets of the helicopter, whereas under the American system, they were more specialised. They only did certain sections, or they specialised in certain sections, whereas we covered the whole engine and the airframe. And what... What this led to was it resulted in some of our naval airmen being coming supervisors and leaders in maintenance crews. And this, of course, was a position their rank would never allow or never be able to do, sorry, um, in the Navy. The way in which the American Army serviced their aircraft was also entirely different. While we had a flexible service system at that time, whereby, whereby we worked on engine hours as well as time. Um, the Americans purely worked on 25 hours, 50 hours, 100 hour flying time. So it, it, this, to us, to the Australians, this resulted in aircraft being down for a lot longer due to this extended maintenance area, especially the one hour, one hour, 100 hour flying. So, it, it again fell on the maintainers to try and get the work done as quickly as possible to get them back into, into the air. My duties included, included carrying out detailed inspections which on all, all aircraft which were due servicing and maintenance. Uh, I would then compile a written list of all the faults <coughs> and the damage that had been done um, and also when the, when the uh, repairs had been carried out, I would then do another inspection and make sure everything had been done in accordance with the appropriate manuals and everything else. Uh, in, a, in the event of an aircraft being shot down or forced landing, I used to accompany the maintenance officer and we would ascertain whether we could carry out repairs in the field or whether we had to chinook it back to our, um, at, back to our base. Once more, of course, we were mindful of, of um, rocket attacks in the local area and also enemy activity, so you get out as soon as you possibly can. So that was in the back of your mind as to whether we should fix it or not. Uh, <clears throat> it could, could also mean changing components in the field. Um, and this sometimes had its problems. I can remember... Uh, 
for instance, we had to change a tail rotor once in the field. We could have, when you change a tail rotor, you have to do what's called a tail rotor track, which is basically making sure both blades are running on the same plane, so that naturally if one's out, you're going to get vibration all the way through the aircraft. So you have to track the, the aircraft. Um, <coughs> I can also remember on one occasion that when we were doing this track, um, we forgot to take the tracking pole, which is a special pole you feed in to make sure the, the, the blades are going on the same track. So we took the, the M60 machine gun spare barrel and taped some China graph on it. <coughs> we, used, we used that as our, our tracking pole. But it still worked, so we got everything done. But then, of course, you're in a paddy field. And you're in a paddy field up to your knees in dirty, stinking mud. Um, and let me tell you, farmers in Vietnam throw everything into their paddy fields. So you could imagine what it smelled like. And, the, and the, the other thing was I could not understand why none of the maintenance people wanted to sit next to me on the way home as well. It also taught you how to keep your mouth closed, I can tell you, when you're doing it, because the, the, the mud would come up and everything. Working conditions at Bearcat for the maintainers could only be described as very basic and very crude. If available, we had parking areas where we could just roll on the next one, just the thank you. Uh, that's the, the covered areas that we could use, but again, this depended on the amount of aircraft that we had working on at any one time. Um, so it usually meant you're out in either the dust or the wet conditions out in the tropical sun doing the repairs. The whole of the maintenance area was one large dust bowl in the dry and one quagmire in the wet. Our day was basically broken into two parts. The day shift started very early in the morning and usually the night shift usually around six o'clock at night. The night shift was probably the most difficult time of all for everyone concerned. One of the biggest challenges, of course, was the lack of light. Most work was completed down on the flight line, which meant you had all the aircraft in revetment, so you, you, um, you would, all work had to be done with, with a flashlight. The old dolphin torch went well. Uh, you either work one-handed, or you work with a small torch in your mouth, and, and tried to fix it that way. But it, it was a very trying time. And then, of course, the other thing was that you were trying to sleep during the heat of the day, and while the day-to-day -day activities and noises of the camp were still going on around you. Um, night shift was there to, assure, to ensure that the aircraft for the following day's commitment could be available. As soon as the aircraft came back in during the, for the day, after the day's commitments, their crew chiefs would then inspect the aircraft and then they'd make a note of any defects that they could find, plus any defects that the, the, sorry, any defects that the pilots found. Um, this would go in, then into the logbook. I would collect all this information and then I would have to distribute to the appropriate people. Again, my job as a TI on the night shift was again to make sure all work was carried out correctly. And then I had to organise either a test run or a test flight, depending on the, whatever the, the, um, the repair was. The full complement that we had was 20 slicks and 10 gunships. But with battle damage and routine maintenance, it was impossible to keep 30 aircraft in the sky. Duty during the day were once more repairing battle damage and carrying out periodic and maintenance service and to ensure as many serviceable ships were available. And this is where I said this 100-hour inspection. I can remember a few days after I arrived up there, um, six aircraft had been shot up down in the Delta. And uh, we, I was very fortunate because I had two of the second flight who hadn't gone home. They didn't go home until the following month. And one of them, a man by the name of Murray Herman, came up and he said, we've got to go down to the Delta. He said, we've got six slicks shot up. And he said, we've got to see what we can do about getting them out. And I, I can remember, I'd only been there five minutes, and I can remember saying, 
out at the people out there that want to see the sight of my blood. I don't think I want to go out there. <laughs> but anyway, he said, no, yeah, no, you'll be right, you'll be right. Mind you, he did, he did become a real estate agent. agent <laughs> I can say that because I did as well. So. Anyway, I, Murray accompanied us down. So when we, when we arrived down there, by the time we arrived down there, all the crews had given us the detailed report of, of what their, their um, battle damage was. So uh, we then went about what we could do to get as many ships out. And Murray, he just said, oh, don't worry, see, we'll take the drive shaft out of that one and put it in that one, that'll be right. And we'll take the short shaft out of that one and we'll put it in that one and that'll be right. And I thought, I can't do this, I can't do it. Well, a complete panic. You know. I, I want to go home. The, the little crew room down at 723 Squadron looked really nice about that time. <laughs> So anyway, we, we did all this swapping around and out of the six aircraft that we shot up, I think we, we took out, uh, we, we flew out I think three or four and the other we took out um, by Chinook. Uh, just down there. Yeah, these are just general maintenance area um, photos. That's working on one of the ships. That's Cliff Reed, who was... Um, we had two civilian workers, uh, sheet metal workers. They were fabulous players. They were, they were civilians. Um, and if you ever wanted anything, like early 1970, we started spare parts really getting hard to get. But if you ever wanted simple things like, like masking tape, like Cliff would go down to Saigon for the weekend and when he'd come back, yeah, there's your masking tape. Still had the American part number on it. They, they <laughs> bought it from little, some little mama son on the side of the street. Yeah. Anyway, so we got it. So out of all, as I said, out of the whole lot, um, <laughs> we ended up flying out the, the six, oh, sorry, flying out the four, three or four, and um, we then had the others uh, well, the others were winched out after that. Actually, I've, I've jumped ahead a bit. I can remember, I'll just read this little bit. If, in fact, it was Murray who said to me, the aircraft have been down and we'll have to fly down to see what we can do. I can remember saying out there, those people like to see the colour of my bud. But he assured me, yeah, no, we'll be OK, everything will be all right. He said, just go to the, the armoury and draw a weapon. I said, oh, OK. Well, I returned with half the armoury. <laughs> I always, I used to say I looked like Rambo minus the muscles, torn shirt and bandana. But anyway, we, we got them, got them back. Uh, from about six months prior to going to, going to Vietnam, we, a couple of the other speakers have already said, we undertook jungle training and also we were taught how to fire and service the weapons where we may, we may have to operate. This was valuable knowledge for us up there, well, for all of us really, because especially those who were becoming door gunners and also required to fly on a regular basis and may at any time be required to use the guns or take over the guns. I do remember on one day when we were running an aircraft after a major repair had been carried out, I was under the cabin <coughs> looking for leaks and when I experienced a sharp pain in both ears, and this was even though I had ear protection on. And when I looked out in front of the aircraft, I could see a large cloud of dust and an aircraft in a revetment was bobbing up and jumping up and down. And what had happened, a mortar shell had landed right in the front of this aircraft and blown half the front away. Well, it took me, I think, about half a second to get out from underneath the aircraft. And I can remember running to the revetment just to the, uh, the to get cover. That I can remember running, and I, I was passed by the pilot, and he had to chuck my thing down. So I don't. Think <laughs> yeah, but we did return later on and finish the run, and everything was okay. Another unpleasant duty the flight had to perform on occasions was the extraction of wounded and KIAs after an enemy action. This resulted in crew chiefs and maintenance people having to hose out the blood from the, from the uh, back of the aircraft, the cabins of the aircraft. It, 
it was a terrible job. It, it, and it, it, um, it was also, sometimes you even had to take the, the panels off to get underneath because there was just so much blood there. And it, you, well, well, I've written down here that you, um, the panels were removed after they returned to base, so the floor panels just to get the smell of death out, because it was, it was a really pungent smell. By 1970, spare parts were becoming harder and harder to obtain. When we first arrived in country, after a ship had done a thousand hours, it was sent back to the US for a complete overhaul. Now this stopped, um, I can't remember exactly when, I think it was sort of the end of 1969 probably. Um, so we, and what, what would happen is that they would, we would fly it up to Fanrang Bay, we'd pick up a new or a, a serviced aircraft, or fully maintained or overhauled, and we would fly that one back. Um, hopefully you got a new one, but that wasn't always the case. You got a refurbished one, but at least it was better than the one you were taking up there. This practice stopped and the ship's lives were extended, putting more pressure on maintenance personnel to keep them in the air. 1,000 combat hours takes a lot out of a helicopter. You've got the twisting of your, of your um, boom and everything else, so it, it really knocked them around. And as I said before, simple little things like split pins or cotter pins to American, they, they, we, we had the different names, but um, they were always hard to find, especially the little ones, little 16 split pins. We, and we used to use a lot of them on the aircraft. Um, and also, um, aluminium was becoming harder and harder to get. So, and this is where the old VB can came in. I always preferred the people to use VB cans rather than Budweiser because VBs are a thicker gauge metal, whereas a Budweiser was very thin and wasn't really good for temporary repairs and small bullet holes and <laughs> shrapnel holes. And, <laughs> well, you had to drink it first. <laughs> yeah. But the thing I did frown upon, and they did it a couple of times, I didn't like the BB sign to be on the outside. <laughs> I didn't believe in free ads. No free ads here. It was also a time when a slab of BB could do wonders as a bartering tool. And then I've gone on to say, but as we have two Australian CEOs and one American CEO sitting here with me, I'll quote the words of Tom Hanks in, as Forrest Gump in the movie of the same name. I'll say no more about that. <laughs> During our year in Vietnam, we were very fortunate insofar as we did not suffer any fatalities. We did have injuries, uh, which facilitated some members to be medevac back to Australia. Um, or treated in country, but we didn't. But we did lose nine of our American brothers, and this, these losses were just as devastating. I must say that while I was there, and I'm sure most of the flight are the same, I was very anxious for the day when we would climb on the Qantas flight and head for home. But looking back, looking back on it now, I wouldn't have missed it for a million dollars. I now have some lifelong friends, both in Australia and in America. We were in a unique and diverse band of service people from two different countries and two completely different armed forces. We were an experimental military unit or EMU. Or if you're American, EMU. <laughs> and I'm very proud to be one of that group. Is there anyone here who can speak Latin? No, good. <laughs> Our motto was Domino Rex Quantum Quo Vardis Rex, which roughly translated means get the bloody job done. And I'm proud to say we did just that. Now, if you can just go to, along to the last one. This one, I, I don't know who the pilot is, and I wouldn't say. Some we could fix, and some we couldn't fix. This pilot decided that he wanted to get a new flight path through the trees instead of over them. <laughs> and that was the result. And just to finish off, I'd like to give you a few facts. From October 1967 to January 1971, the Australian pilots flew 33,000 hours, 
seven, sorry, 33,724 hours. And the 135th of that same period of time, 67 to 71, flew 114,432 hours. And the RAN detachment with number nine squadron from February 68 to May 1969, they flew a total of 9,000, beg your pardon, 4,908 hours. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. That completes the second episode of our three podcasts on the RAN fleet air arm in the Vietnam War. We hope that you will join us next week for the third episode, which will consider experiences from beyond the battlefield.